what sort of man is this? That's the question that drives the section that we come to this morning, Matthew chapter 8 and verses 23 through 27. And it's here that Matthew continues to build his argument that he has been marshalling since verse 1 of chapter 1. He wants us to understand and recognize that Jesus is the messianic king. And so he spends those first four or so chapters flashing Jesus' credentials to us. Jesus has the right pedigree. He comes from the right family. He's a son of David, a son of Abraham. And in Matthew's opinion, the one who will bring blessing to the nations. Indeed, Jesus fulfills the right prophecies, prophecies about the Messianic King. In fact, he looks a lot like a a new sort of Israel, a new Moses. His life is threatened by a king in his infancy. He's called out of Egypt. He passes through waters, through the wilderness, and eventually to a mountain where God's words are spoken. Yet this time, God's word comes not by way of Moses or tablets, but from the very lips of Christ himself. In his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus challenges anyone who will to enter the kingdom of heaven. And yet they have to discover the only way into the kingdom is if they will become poor in spirit and depend not on their own righteousness, but on the righteousness of Christ himself. He calls people to himself and to holiness. Then, as he steps down from that mountain and out of his pulpit, he puts on display his great power and authority. He doesn't just teach as one who has authority. He heals with one who has authority. And he heals by way of his word and his touch. Great crowds gather, and yet Jesus is not trying to build his platform or gain a particularly large following. He he is not looking for casual disciples. He's looking for real and true disciples, and so he withdraws from the crowd and demands that anyone who would follow him be willing to forsake all worldly comforts and rearrange all worldly relationships with himself situated at the top. He makes the demands of a king. He has the right credentials. He has the right authority, kingly credentials, kingly authority, and he has the greatest endorsement any king could ever have. Remember back in chapter 3, when Jesus is baptized, God the Holy Spirit comes and rests upon him, And the voice of God the Father declares, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. What sort of man is this? Jesus is the Son of Man, the Son of God, the Savior of his people. He is the king who is promised. He's the one who commands even nature, even winds and 
ways. And that's the main idea of our few verses here this morning, that Jesus commands the winds and the waves. And our little paragraph, pericope, has two major sort of emphases. One is more major, one is more minor. Uh, I'm not really great at music, but if you've looked at your outline and cheated ahead, you've seen uh, we have tried to divide this sermon into two parts, the melody and the harmony. And and from what I can gather, uh, and again, I could be wrong, so just work with me here, uh, any piece of music you listen to, typically, is going to have a melody which drives the song forward, sort of the, the main part, if you will. And some songs will have harmony. Uh, the harmony exists to complement the melody and cannot exist without the melody. With me? And so we're going to try to think about the uh, particular emphasis of Matthew in this passage in this way. With the question, what sort of man is this serving as our melody, the, the big main flashing part, And then the other question, why are you afraid, O you of little faith, as the harmony? The other sort of accent in the passage, the other thing that's that's calling out for our attention. And so my my hope is, is that as we look at the song of the text, we will see both melody and harmony work together to help us to see Jesus more clearly and respond appropriately. With that said, let's pray and we will begin our time together this morning. Father, we ask for your help. Pray that you would give to us your Holy Spirit, that we might see and understand your word, that in your word we might come to know Christ more, that we might worship you in spirit and in truth. Lord, thank you for this great privilege, privilege of reading your word and hearing your word and singing your word, but thank you for giving your word to us. We are so blessed. We live in a place where we have an embarrassment of riches. Lord, thank you. Pray that you would help us to hear your voice, and what we know not, teach us, what we are not, make us, and what we have not, give us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Look with me at verse 23 of Matthew chapter 8. And when he, that's Jesus, got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. And Jesus has called out some of his disciples from among the crowd to cross over to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, away from the land of the Jews and into the land of the Gentiles. And as their little flotilla goes along, Mark tells us there's more than just the one boat. The the 12 are likely on the boat that Jesus is on, but there's multiple boats. As this little flotilla goes out across the Sea of Galilee, it isn't too long before Jesus's words in the prior verses come to fruition. Indeed, the Son of Man 
has no place to lay his head. And so he lies asleep in a ship. And indeed, great difficulty descends upon his disciples. A storm rises up. You see that there, uh, verse 24, a great storm became on the sea. And I don't normally bring up uh, Greek from the pulpit, uh, and I do so this morning not because it's going to give you some special insight, uh, but because I just think it's kind of neat uh, sometimes seeing how our words develop. Uh, so the words for great storm in Greek are seismos megas. And you can almost, you're going, wait a minute, do I know more Greek than I thought? And you do. You do. The, the first word, and I always mispronounce it when I'm reading it, is, is uh, seismos, is seismos. You can kind of hear it. Seismic, right? right? So like an earthquake, and it can actually be translated earthquake or storm, depending on the context. So you've got seismic and megas, great or loud, or as I remembered it in Greek, mega, right? So you have a mega storm, an earthquake-level storm on your hands here. Matthew describes it, the, the boat is being swamped by the waves. To get an understanding for how intense this storm was, I don't know that it helps us a whole lot to, to think about being on the sea because most of us uh, don't spend a whole lot of time on boats on the sea in storms. Uh, but maybe uh, some of you have at least experienced air travel to some extent, right? So this, this storm is big enough to cause some of these career fishermen to start freaking out a little bit. So imagine yourself on an airplane and you're experiencing turbulence. But it's not just normal turbulence, it's turbulence enough to cause the flight attendants to sit down, one even sits next to you, fastens her seatbelt, and then she turns to you and says, all we can do now is pray. Right? You would know this is not normal turbulence. This is earthquake-level turbulence. This is what we have before us is a mega storm. The, the boat is going this way and that way. It's being tossed in the waves. It's, it's maybe going to come apart, be swallowed up. And where is Jesus? Asleep. Asleep. This is striking in so many ways. I mean, Sleep often throughout the Old Testament is a sign of trust in God's providence and his help. Certainly we could have a picture of that here. But I think the answer for why Jesus is asleep is actually um, more obvious than that. He's tired. He's tired. And preaching and healing. He's exhausted. And what are we to learn from this? That Jesus slept and wept and got hungry, and got thirsty. We're to learn that Jesus is fully human. That Jesus was and is a man, like you and me. This is what this time of year is all about. It's the first Sunday of Advent. This is what Christmas is about. It's about God Becoming a man. 
bit of review here. Remember, we as Christians, we worship uh, one God who exists eternally as three persons. We've said it this way, one what God comprised of three who's, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And it's the second person of that trinity, God the Son, who becomes the man, Jesus Christ. See, at Christmas, God the Son takes onto himself a second nature. So you have in Jesus Christ uh, one person with two natures, fully God and fully man. This is really important. Uh, the incarnation does not bring about a change in God. God doesn't change. It's the same yesterday, today, and forever. What happens in the incarnation is a miracle of addition. God the Son takes onto himself a second nature, a human nature. You go, why? So that he might bleed and die for the sins of men. God the Son becomes a man so that he might save men from their sins by dying in their place as their substitute on a Roman cross. Christmas is about the cross. Jesus comes to save us by living a perfect life in our place, dying a substitutionary death in our place and rise from the dead so we can have a place in the family of God. Isn't it incredible that Jesus came to die? And I don't want to pit miracles and Christianity against one another, but I might think there's a good argument to be made that the supreme miracle of Christianity is the incarnation at Christmas. You have the infinite God, the creator of the cosmos, entering into his creation. He identifies with his people. I heard a great illustration one time, and I'm going to co-opt it here. Uh, Y'all have seen Aladdin, right? And in Aladdin, there's the genie, and he's got, you know, phenomenal cosmic powers, and he's really impressive when he's introducing himself to Aladdin. And then he shrinks himself down inside the lamp, and Aladdin takes the top off of the lamp, and he says, itty-bitty living space, right? This is sort of what's happening in the incarnation. You have the fullness of, of God, phenomenal cosmic power in the womb of a virgin, itty-bitty living space. God becomes man. The infinite becomes finite. The immortal becomes killable. Why? So that he might save us. That is supremely incredible. Why? Why does Jesus sleep? Because he is a man like you 
in me. Well, what sort of man is this? You could answer it in a, with another question from the old Christmas song. What child is this? You know the lines. What child is this who laid to rest on Mary's lap is sleeping? Whom angels greet with anthems sweet while shepherds watch our keeping? This, this is Christ, the King. And his sleep at Mary's breast shows us the same thing his sleep upon the ship does to us now. God has become a man. In simpler terms, Merry Christmas. What sort of man is this? Jesus is the son of man and a man like you and I, uh, but the son of man, that doesn't, it means that he's killable, yes, but it also means in scripture as we looked at last week from Daniel 7, that he is to be a messianic figure, that he is going to be a highly exalted king because he's also the son of God. Look with me. Back at our text, when he got into the boat and his disciples followed him, behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, this is just like, look, Greek twice in one day. I sound so smart up here. Two words in Greek, just Lord, save. They say, save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was great calm. And the men marveled, saying, what sort of man is this? that even winds and sea obey him. Imagine yourself there. Boat is jerking from one side to another. You can hardly get your feet. It's dark. There's the occasional bolt of lightning scarring the canvas the sky above you. You have never seen a storm like this before. Feels like you're in an earthquake. Disoriented, you and, and the other disciples think to yourselves, this is it. And in an act of desperation, you, you go, you know, where, where is Jesus? Maybe he can do something. Maybe. Maybe. And you go and you find him asleep. And so you shake him awake, and he's, you know, rubbing the sleep out of his eyes. And all of you in unison are shouting, we are dying! Right, the, the synoptic gospels all have different things being said in the mouths of the disciples here. And I think it's because all of them were probably speaking at the same time and saying different things, Right? Do you even care? This is what Mark says. Do you even care that we're dying? We're perishing. Do something. And Jesus, still on his side in Matthew's account, still laying there, 
which I just think is great, rebukes them. He corrects them. He says, oh, you of little faith. And then he gets up and he continues rebuking. Not you or the other disciples with you, but the weather. And I imagine at that moment in time, if you're like me, you're probably thinking, is he barking mad? Like, he's going to, he's going to yell at the weather. What is wrong with him? I mean, think about what you would think of a person who, anytime it stormed or if it, it rained today and you're one like Margie who doesn't like the rain, and they just walk outside and they start yelling at the sky. Like, this is their solution to the problem. This doesn't seem like a viable solution, Jesus. You're going to get angry at the sea? But then all at once, the sea is stilled. Like a dog hearing the voice of its master, both waves and wind sit down. The wind shuts up and the sea goes flat. Have you ever seen water that you can see a reflection in? It's kind of calm we're talking about here. Wouldn't you turn your attention to Jesus just like the disciples and say, what sort of man is this? that even winds and sea obey him. Mark has them terrified. They should be. What sort of man is this? Why do they say that? Because he sleeps like a man and yet rules over nature like God. This is incredible. The only person who commands the weather in the Bible or anywhere, is God. Perhaps they thought of Psalm 107, verse 28. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. Or perhaps they thought of Psalm 65. By awesome deeds you answer us with righteousness, O God of our salvation, the hope of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas, the one who by his strength established the mountains, being girded with might, the one who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, the tumult of the peoples, so that those who dwell at the ends of the earth are in awe at your signs." You make the going out of the morning and the evening to shout for joy. Or maybe they thought of Psalm 89. Oh, Lord, God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, with your faithfulness all around you, who you rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. What sort of man is this? He is the Son of Man, fully human, sleeps, gets tired, hungry. And he is the Son of God, 
in him the fullness of deity dwells bodily. Indeed, this is the promised Messiah King, the Savior of his people. Savior of his people. You look back at verse 25. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? He arose and rebuked the wind and the sea, and there was great calm. They come to Jesus and they just want him to do something. And he responds to their faith, poor as it may be, by saving them. Can't help but think of the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes. Chapter 5, verse 2, it's the key to the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And here, the disciples at the end of themselves come with maybe with poor faith, but they come to Jesus and he responds to that. He responds to their poverty of spirit by saving them. He saves them not because of the amount of their faith, but because he is the object of their faith. We're going to return to this in a moment. But the, the question of the Bible that it's interested in isn't how much faith you have, but where your faith is. Everybody has faith. But where is your faith? What is it in? So for example, um, I could have all the faith in the world in my ability to breathe underwater. You might really believe that. You know, just I'm built different. I can breathe underwater. And if I attempt that feat, all my faith in myself, I will drown. Or at least come up spitting water because, you know, Jeremiah's been kind enough to revive me. If I have very little faith, don't know why I'm on airplanes today, but airplanes, in an airplane, and yet get on it thinking there's no way I'm going to fly. This thing is like all made of metal. Stupid. But if I get on it, I'm going to go from point A to point B across the sky, despite my little faith. You see, quality of my faith is enough, as long as it's in the right place, to deliver me. We're going to come back there in a moment, but what I want you to recognize right now is that Jesus saves his disciples, and it's because he's good. Not because they deserve it, but because he is good and kind. And I can't help, what, when I read this story, I can't help it, but think of the story of Jonah. And the, the literary connections are tighter in Mark, but the allusions are still here in Matthew. If you remember uh, the story of Jonah, I'm, maybe you don't, I'm just going to draw a brief vignette uh, of the first chapter anyway for you. Uh, Jonah is called to go to the Gentile peoples of Nineveh and to preach condemnation over them. He, he's not too keen on that fact, though, because uh, the Ninevites were deadly and dangerous and enemies of Israel, and so he's not super pumped about the possibility of them responding negatively to a message of judgment. And he doesn't really want them to respond positively to the message either, because that means that the Lord would forgive them. He wants them to be judged. 
So deciding he doesn't want to go to Nineveh, Jonah commissions a ship, he pays for the ship, and he, he gets on the ship and he heads for Tarshish, the text says multiple times, away from the presence of the Lord. And as they're going along, he falls asleep on the ship, and what happens? Uh, but the Lord hurls a great wind upon the sea. There is a storm that threatens to break the ship apart. And then we have the captain come to Jonah and say, Jonah, verse 6, chapter 1, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. Jonah refuses to call out to God at this point. He doesn't do it until much later. Uh, and the sailors, they get together with Jonah, they begin casting lots, sort of like throwing dice, to figure out why is this storm coming upon us? Whose fault is it? And they cast the, the die, and the Lord causes it to land on Jonah. At which point Jonah says, I am fleeing the presence of the Lord. I'm not doing what he wants me to do. This storm's kind of all my fault. And the way that we will still this storm uh, the way that you guys can come out the other side alive is if you throw me into the storm. And for pagan mariners, they're pretty nice guys. They're like, we don't want to go that route right away. We're going to try to row against the storm first, and it doesn't work out. And eventually they go, we have to listen to Jonah. We're going we're gonna to toss him overboard to still the storm. And this is what they say, verse 14. Therefore, the mariners, sailors, called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. They throw Jonah overboard. He's swallowed up by a great fish. The storm is stilled, and the mariners fall down and worship the one true God. Of course, later, uh, Jonah coming to the brink of death in the belly of the fish, calls out to God finally. He's then taken to his destination in Nineveh where he preaches the word of God effectively. There really are some striking similarities between that story and ours. Jesus, like Jonah, sleeps on a ship. There's a storm. And indeed, we can almost hear the disciples' voice in the voice of the mariners, you know, do something. We're perishing. Save us. Jonah stills the storm by allowing himself to be cast into the sea. A storm that was brought upon the mariners because of Jonah's sin. Jesus stills the storm with his word. It stops dead. The waves and the winds obey him. You know, we also recognize this story works at another level. Indeed, Jonah stops the storm at the expense of his life, if you will, as he experiences a sort of death. And he goes into the belly of the fish because of his own sin. Yet we look at Jesus and we recognize that he stills the storm, not not just the storm they were in here, but the great storm of God's wrath against man's sin. He does so at the expense of his life. He plunges himself beneath the winds and waves of God's wrath. 
On the cross, he suffers, bleeds, and dies before being buried in the heart of the earth. Jesus speaks about this in Matthew 12, verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so too will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus is greater than Jonah. He flees not the presence of the Lord, but lives faithfully in it all the way to his death on the cross. The sign that is given to the generation among whom Jesus walked is the sign of Jonah. It's the sign of preaching and of his death and resurrection. Friends, when we hear the word of the gospel and believe the truth of it, when we believe in Christ crucified for sins and raised for our justification, we speak a little bit like those mariners who tossed Jonah overboard. We don't say, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood because you have done as it pleased you. Instead, we say, oh Lord do lay on us this man's innocent blood so that we might be saved. Let his blood be on us because you, Lord, have done as it pleased you. It was your pleasure to crush him beneath your wrath, to lay on him all of our iniquities, and by his wounds we are healed. When we call out poor in spirit, God delights to save. Name is Jesus after all. Matthew 1 21, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Jesus is the Son of Man, the Son of God, and the Savior of his people. That's the melody line. Let's turn our attention to the harmony. Jesus asks his disciples that come to him, why are you afraid, O you, of little faith? He's not yelling at them because he's grumpy that they woke him up from his nap, right? That would be something I would do. Some of you know what it's like to be a nightmare to wake up. That's not Jesus here. He is rebuking them to instruct them about the kind of confidence that they ought to have in him. Their faith in him shouldn't be little it ought to be mature. They come to him not, I mean, they call him Lord, but they speak better than they know. They don't come to him going, Lord, C's acting up again. Get it under control. You rule the wind and the waves. No, no, no. They're coming to him like that man in, in Mark 9. Remember, son is demon-possessed, and he, he comes to Jesus, and he says, if you can do anything, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus says to him, if you can, 
all things are possible for the one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cries out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. That's how the disciples are coming. They're coming, I believe, help my unbelief. Lord, save, do something if you can. And Jesus is saying, if, oh, you of little faith. Yes, he, he saves them, but it's not because of their solid faith in him. It's despite it. Yes, it's, let's give them credit where credit is due. When you find yourself in difficulty, it is good to come to Jesus, even if your faith is small. I mean, what do you do in a panic or in a storm? You go to Jesus. The disciples provide a good model for us there. And yet Jesus does rebuke them. Why does he call their faith little faith? I think it's because their conception of who he is is fuzzy. They understand he's a great man, that he has the power to heal, that he teaches as one with authority. But they don't have a category for him as the one who can scold a storm. They don't recognize that he is God in the flesh. And therefore, their faith in his ability to rule as master of the sea is little. Their fuzzy knowledge about Jesus leads to little faith in Jesus. Have you ever uh, had the experience or heard about, uh, you know, a young woman saying something along the lines of, I'm a little pregnant. What does she mean by that? What she doesn't mean is that she's not pregnant, right? When she says, I'm a little pregnant, what, what she means is to tell you about the status of her pregnancy. It's early on in development. The baby that has been conceived in her womb is not that mature yet. It's not, it's not showing yet. But as time goes on and baby develops and becomes more mature, the life inside of her becomes obvious outside of her. As her pregnancy matures and baby grows, it, it shows up. I think similarly here, when the disciples have little faith, it is an immature, underdeveloped sort of faith in Jesus. And the kind of faith that Jesus would like them to have, would like you and I to have, is one that is more mature. Some of us have gone our whole lives with faith, but we're not really showing yet. When the storms come and suffering takes us by surprise, we merely go to Jesus in a panic, not sure if he can address the situation. But what Jesus wants us to do is to come to him with confidence and certainty. Not because we're confident in our faith or its strength, but because we're confident in who he is. See, when your faith grows, it, it shows 
You go, well, how do I grow my faith? How do I get mature faith? You come to know Jesus more clearly, more intimately. You get your hands around his identity. You recognize that he's not just a son of man. He is the son of God, the savior of his people. You will not mature in Christ-likeness in your discipleship. You will not mature in your Christian life just by letting time pass. It doesn't work like pregnancy. You will only mature as you get to know Jesus more. Learn about who he is with greater clarity. The disciples here are left aghast, amazed. You could even translate that word confused. And their confusion will not become clarity until later on. Their question, what sort of man is this that even winds and see obey him? Finally, finally is made clear after a cross and three days of sorrow. Clarity about what sort of man Jesus is comes when he stands before them alive after being dead. Clarity about Jesus comes home to them as he shows them his scars and cooks breakfast for them on the beach. Clarity about Jesus comes when there is another seismus megas in Matthew 28. And an angel appears as lightning and is clothed in white says to the women at the tomb in Matthew 28, 5, Do not be afraid, for I know what you seek. Jesus, who was crucified, he is not here, for he has risen. But what sort of man is this? The kind of man that the grave can't hold. The kind of man who can take you out of death and save you from your sins. He's the kind of man who rules over diseases and demons and disasters and the whole world. He's the kind of man who can bring joy to the world. Jesus is the Son of Man, the Son of God, the Savior of his people. And when we understand who Jesus is, our faith matures, it grows, and it shows how do you think Peter goes from being afraid of a little girl at a bonfire to insisting that his killers crucify him upside down because he's not ready to die, worthy to die in the same manner as Jesus? What do you think takes Paul from a murderer and a persecutor of the church to someone who is willing to be shipwrecked and beaten and stoned and get back up and go back into the city again? What do you think changes a bunch of fishermen and outcasts from being locked away in a room, afraid of the Jews, to becoming pioneers of what is now the world's largest religion? It's an understanding of who Jesus is. If Jesus can't calm the sea, then they do well to be afraid and to come to him. Lord, if you can do anything, save us. But if Jesus is God in the flesh, they have nothing to fear and you have nothing to fear. Do not be afraid 
I know you seek Jesus. He was crucified. He's not here. He has risen. If Jesus is who the Bible says he is, and he is, we as his people have nothing to fear in life. Jesus says, don't fear those who can kill the body and then do nothing. Fear the one who can cast into hell. Jesus is faithful. The one who trusts in him, even though he die, yet shall he live. He's the master of the sea. He holds the keys of death in Hades. He rules the world. What sort of man is this? He's the God-man. He is our king. And if we want to get through this life faithfully, fearlessly, we will do the simple thing. We will trust and obey and strive to know him more. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus, just to take him at his word, just to rest upon his promise, and just to know, thus saith the Lord. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, oh, for grace to trust him more. Why are you afraid, oh, you of little faith? Don't you know what sort of man Jesus is? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would apply it to our lives, that you would shape us to be more like Christ. We thank you for your grace, that you have saved us, not because we are so great, but because you are. Pray that you would help us to walk in the newness of life this week, and that we would represent well Jesus to one another and to the world. We thank you for your loving kindness, and we pray in the name of our King Jesus. Amen.